So let's turn together now to 2 Peter chapter 3. And this is the Sunday that we bring that series through 2 Peter to a conclusion as we take on the final verses here. Today we're going to talk about growing for His glory. You already know this, but life involves a lot of waiting. We seem to be waiting for something all the time. Right now we're in a season of the year that the children are waiting anxiously, maybe even impatiently for Christmas morning to arrive. And of course, the parents are not so eager. Maybe the parents are like, I need more time. I don't want the 25th to get here so fast. And probably like me, you can remember when you were a child, it felt like December 25th would never get there. I mean, a whole year you have to wait for Christmas to come again. Why don't they do this every week, you know, you think as a child. But I remember you'd hit December and you think, okay, it's almost here. But those days were excruciatingly slow to get to Christmas morning when you could open up all those gifts. The other thing from my childhood that had that same kind of longing in it for me was waiting to turn 16 where I could drive a car. I'm the youngest of five, and so I watched my siblings one by one get that amazing freedom to be able to drive around. In fact, my next nearest sibling, four years ahead of me, so watched her drive, still had four years to wait for my turn. And so the day came, turned 16, and where I grew up, the day you turn 16, you go to the DMV, take your driving test, and they'd actually hand you the license that moment. And so my mom took me, I passed the driver's test, we drove back to the house, and she said, all right, you can drive yourself to school, and she was going to go to work. I couldn't believe it. This can't be real. I've waited on this for so long. And I thought, I've got to see this for myself. So I pulled my license out of my wallet just to look at it again. Because I thought, I'm going to get in trouble if I drive without a license. This can't be happening. But it was true. So exciting. What makes waiting so hard is when something is so wonderful. And here we are as believers and we're waiting on the return of Jesus and all the glories for us that are going to unfold when he comes. And that's difficult to wait for. We're waiting on heaven and all the perfections and eventually the new earth. And we want all that. It's tough to wait for something so wonderful. The other thing that makes waiting so hard is when life is hard now and getting harder, right? You think, I just want this type of life to be over, that I might have that life, and yet we wait. Hey, let me remind you, we're waiting, but it's truly going to happen. Just as real as you're sitting right where you are, if you can feel your feet on the floor and touch something, I'm, I'm here, I'm really here. One day you really will be, if you're a believer in Jesus, you really will be in heaven, experiencing it just like you're experiencing this. And eventually you will be on the new earth and you'll be here and you'll be thinking, I remember when I was on the earth in its present condition or old condition, oh, but the new is so much better. Well, Peter now is going to tell us while we wait, what we are to do. So let's dive into our text together, picking up in verse 13 of 2 Peter 3. What do we do while we wait on the return of Jesus? But according to his promise, we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you are waiting for these, be diligent to be found by him without spot or blemish and at peace and count the patience of our Lord as salvation. Just as our beloved brother Paul also wrote to you, according to the wisdom given him, as he does in all his letters, when he speaks in them of these matters, there are some things in them that are hard to understand which the ignorant and unstable twist to their own destruction as they do the other scriptures. You therefore, beloved, knowing this beforehand, take care that you're not carried away with the error of lawless people and lose your own stability, but grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. To him be the glory both now and to the day of eternity. Amen. 
Peter says, we're waiting. He talked about the new earth last time, but we're waiting. We're waiting on Jesus to come, but we're not waiting in a passive way. The word here he uses for waiting here is meaning to expect, to look to. So we know this is coming. We're not waiting in vain, but it's difficult to wait. But we wait eagerly. We even, we even wait actively. So let's consider what does Peter say we ought to do while we wait? Well, first of all, we should grow in faithfulness. Grow in faithfulness. That's verse 14. Therefore, beloved, since you are waiting for these, be diligent to be found by him without spot or blemish and at peace. The same thing he said in verses 11 and 12. Look at those again. Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God? So this is a consistent exhortation in the scriptures, how we're to be when we wait on the coming of Jesus. So have you ever thought about it? What do you want to be found doing when Jesus returns? When he comes like a thief in the night, as he describes his coming, when he appears in the sky, what do you want to be found doing? Well, the scripture talks a lot about that. You want to be found faithful. John talked about it in 1 John 2, 28. And now little children abide in him so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink from him in shame at his coming. So he's coming. We want to anticipate him with great joy rather than, oh no, this is not how I wanted him to find me. Or 1 John 3, 2 and 3 says, we know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. So we're just talking about what do I do while I await the glorious return of Jesus? Oh, I, I am to grow in faithfulness. And notice here, Peter calls out specifically growing in holiness to the Lord. Look at it again, verse 14. Therefore, beloved, since you are waiting for these, be diligent to be found by him without spot or blemish and at peace. So be diligent with your walk with Christ. Take seriously your obedience to him. We don't want to be passive and spiritually lazy while we're waiting for Jesus to come. We want to grow in our faithfulness. So let me ask you this. Is your relationship with Jesus marked by a diligence toward faithfulness? Do you have a passion to grow in Christ? Are you demonstrating that in your life? And so as I think about the Christian life, what it involves to walk the walk we're supposed to, it really does involve what we could call offense and defense. If you ever watched a sporting event, you've noticed almost every sport there's offense and defense. It would be weird if they only played offense. Everybody would be scoring behind them if they never turned around and were on guard. Well, spiritually, it's the same thing. So when I think about playing offense spiritually, that means, oh, I'm going to proactively go meet with the Lord every day. I need him. got to spend time with him. I want to be a worshiper of his. I want to serve the Lord proactively in the church and out in the world. I want to share the gospel. I want to show acts of compassion and bear others' burdens. That's us playing offense. But isn't it wise that we also play defense? And we must spiritually. This has to be a part of your life as well. To turn away from the many temptations that you face in a given day. That's playing defense. To guard against the many enticements of a lost and dying culture. They're beckoning you to come with them. We have to play defense. No, I can't go with you there. I love you, but I won't follow you there. To be on guard against temptations, maybe from your peers, maybe the people you hang with. They want to go do things. You know, I can't do that. I belong to Jesus, so I'm, I'm serving him, but I've got to play some defense. I can't go do that with you. 
goodness, this is a big part of it. Those many temptations that arise from within our own sinful desires. We're battling those constantly. That temptation toward laziness, that temptation toward pride or greed or lust. And we're constantly having to play defense. No, I can't follow that. I'm a follower of Jesus. And being on guard against the schemes of the devil himself. One of my favorite passages that I often read to you is James 4, 7, and 8, because I love the promise here about playing defense and how it works. Notice this. It says, submit yourselves, therefore, to God. That's offense. Here we go, defense. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Back to offense. Draw near to God, and he'll draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, You're, you double-minded. So we want to draw close to Christ while turning away from the many temptations in the world that would seek to entangle us. So we're just talking about what do I do till Jesus comes? I want to grow in faithfulness, growing in holiness, but also enjoying God's peace. Did you notice that in verse 14? Therefore, beloved, since you are waiting for these, be diligent to be found by him without spot or blemish and at peace. Let's talk about peace together for a moment in two different directions. First of all, isn't there great peace and knowing that you're right with God and that when he comes, you're going to be with him. Even if you're going through terrible circumstances now, even if you're experiencing persecution for the name of Christ, to know, oh, but he's coming. And when he comes, he'll make all things right. At last, I'll be vindicated. I'll have no more problems when he comes again. So we rejoice in the peace that we have when we anticipate what's coming. But even presently, a walk of faithfulness also yields peace in our lives right now. In fact, the opposite's also true. If you've ever tried it as a Christian to live a life of disobedience to Jesus, you find, well, the first thing to go in disobedience is the peace of God. Your joy is gone when you walk in disobedience. Your power is gone. In fact, it's been my experience with sin always robs me peace first. I realize immediately, ah, oh, I've just created distance from my Savior. I don't like that. Joy is gone. Peace and strength are gone. But here's the good news. We have a merciful Savior. And I hope you've experienced this as well. When you create distance from Jesus and you lose your peace, that you can confess to him that you were wrong and repent of that sin and find it. Doesn't he wonderfully restore your peace? Doesn't he restore your joy and restore your strength? He's so merciful. But notice with me that holiness and peace, they go together. So be diligent about your faithfulness. So let me ask you, are you pursuing full obedience to Jesus? Is that even one of your aspirations? I want to be fully obedient to Jesus. Some people might reject that. They say, that sounds like legalism because nobody's perfect. And to try to aspire to be perfect, perfect in your obedience, wouldn't that be legalism? Just a rule checker. No, we're not talking about that. Of course, we are imperfect and we do fall and we do make mistakes, but that doesn't mean we should not aim to be fully devoted to the Lord. The alternative is not worthy of the Lord. Just because we can't be perfect in our condition doesn't mean we don't pursue complete obedience to the Lord. Paul lived this way. In Romans 13, 14, he said, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ, listen, and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. Paul's mindset was this, I'm all in, no conscious sin in my life. I won't even leave room for sin in my life. So this would be the danger if we say, well, I do want to be sort of committed to Jesus, or even I want to be mostly committed to Jesus, but I'm going to leave some areas in my life that I know he doesn't like. These are contrary to what he said, but I'm going to make provision for these. I'm going to make allowances for these things that I know I'm going to continue. And God's good with that. 
No, God's not good with that. Make no provision for the flesh. He says you want to be without spot, without blemish. This is the call we have. Let me ask you, those of you who are married, how would you like a marriage where your spouse is sort of committed to you? If they said to you at the wedding altar, I pledge to you to be somewhat faithful to you. Mostly faithful. Would you be pleased with mostly faithful? You, you know you're marrying an imperfect person, but the pledge to be mostly faithful would be alarming to you. And so we know in marriage, listen, my eyes need to be only for my spouse. My mind needs to be only for my spouse. Of course, my body needs to be only. But it's, it's all in this one person for life devoted here. No, don't you understand that we are the bride of Christ? That we are to be that type of bride for him. This is how Paul talked in Ephesians 5, 25 through 27. Husbands, love your wives as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her. Now he shifts to talk about the church and Jesus. That he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing that she might be holy and without blemish. Same language Peter uses here in our text. Verse 14 again. Be diligent to be found by him without spot or blemish. So what do we do until the glorious return of Jesus? Well, we want to grow in faithfulness. But next we see this. We should grow in biblical stability. We should grow in biblical stability. Back to verse 15. And count the patience of our Lord as salvation, just as our beloved brother Paul also wrote to you according to the wisdom given him, as he does in all his letters, when he speaks in them of these matters, there are some things in them that are hard to understand, which the ignorant and unstable twist to their own destruction, as they do the other scriptures. You, therefore, beloved, knowing this beforehand, take care that you're not carried away with the error of lawless people and lose your own stability. Once again, Peter, before he closes his letter, takes us back to the reality that there are false teachers. They want to lead you away from pure devotion to Christ. They want to get you into error, and their method is to twist the Scriptures, to lead you away. You do know that you and I live in a time where many people are living in instability. We're told here, don't leave your stability in Christ and go into instability, but we live in a time of instability. Perhaps you know this, that many people who profess to be Christians are living in the instability of the, the viewpoint of the world. In fact, I read recently Barna, somebody quoted Barna and said this, only 21% of those who regularly attend evangelical churches have a biblical worldview, seeing every part of life through the truth of scripture. That's a, that's a shocking statistic. That only 21% of people who attend churches like this, evangelical churches, only 21% have a biblical worldview. So what's a biblical worldview? That's when you look at all of life through the lens of scripture. When you say my view on every topic is the view that the scriptures teach. Now you and I have friends and family who say, well, I'm a Christian, but I vehemently oppose what the Bible says on a lot of those topics. I have a view that's different than that. So, so let's just talk about some examples here. So the issue of the sanctity of human life. So if I'm a disciple, if I'm a Christian, then my view on, the, on when does life begin, as it comes from the scripture. I don't have any other view than the biblical view on that. Because I'm a, I'm a follower of Jesus, right? Or what is marriage? Well, what's my view on that? It's the biblical view on that. Because I'm a follower of Jesus. Or what do you think about heaven and hell? Well, the Bible talks a lot about heaven. The Bible talks a lot about hell. 
The reality of those, and so I believe in the reality of heaven and hell. And what about salvation? How can a person be made right with God? Well, it's through Jesus alone. It's what the Bible teaches. I don't have any different view than that. It's a biblical worldview. And so Peter says, don't be carried away from those who are trying to lead you away from the truth, who are twisting even the scriptures. You and I are to be, remain rooted in the scriptures. We're to be on the rock of God's word here. They twist. I love it here. Peter says, you know, there's some things that Paul wrote that are hard to understand. That's good. We're in good company. If you're ever reading the scripture, you go, man, I, I know that's true, but I'm not exactly sure how I should best interpret that passage. Well, Peter says it of Paul. Sometimes we, we have a little trouble understanding it. See, so the problem is, though, that some people come along and they'll twist those words. Have you ever seen somebody twist scripture? Sometimes you, you're hearing it and you go, something's off with that. I hear what he's saying. He's, he's quoting a verse, but that didn't sound about right. People do it all the time. Let me give you one example. Famously, a lot of people twist the verse Judge not, lest you be judged. It's the one verse many unbelievers cite. They don't know anything else about the Bible but that one. And it's usually an aha. It's like a gotcha moment. Judge not, lest you be judged. Now, that's a great verse. Jesus actually said those words, and he meant those words. Just doesn't mean what the person's lifted out to mean. Jesus talked about that in the sense that we should not be judgmental people. We should not be condemning people. We shouldn't put ourselves in the position of God. But Jesus taught that in the context. Remember, remember famously, Jesus said, hey, don't, don't have a beam in your eye that you're ignoring and trying to take a speck out of someone else's eye. I mean, check yourself out first. But he never said, don't be discerning. He never said what some people mean by that when they twist it. Their, their meaning by that, you can't tell me anything. That nobody knows right or wrong. I do whatever I want to. Nobody can hold me accountable because you can't judge me. Another way where we see specifically the words of Paul twisted, and this is common, this is right in our day, so relevant, where people look at the area of, of sexuality, the area of morality, and people are twisting the words of Paul, just like Peter said they would do. In fact, there's some people saying, well, I don't even follow Paul, I just follow the words of Jesus. So they'll even negate the words of Paul in their minds. Or they'll look at the plain teaching of Paul that the church for 2,000 years didn't have any question about. These weren't hard to understand. What is marriage? What's male and female? What, what, how you should abstain from sexuality until you're married to a, to a man or woman. And so, so those words are so clear. Nobody questioned them until our current generation and twisted that you and I are to remain rooted in the word of God. In fact, notice with me here that Peter calls the writings of Paul, he calls them scripture. So have you ever wondered, did Paul know he was writing scripture? Did the church know they were, they were writing scripture? Did Peter know? Yeah, right here in the text. Look at it, the latter part of verse 15. He says, there are some things Paul wrote hard to understand that some people twist. Notice, as they do the other scriptures. So he's regarding Paul's writings as scriptures at the same time Peter's writing this as they do the Old Testament scriptures. So we're talking about the church understood early these are authoritative. These are scriptures. These are the words of God. So how do we then protect ourselves from those who would twist scriptures? Well, let's talk about a few practical ways to do that. First of all, whenever you come to the scripture, interpret scripture in its context. So for instance, somebody says, judge not lest you be judged. Well, that's true. That's a true statement. But to understand it, let me look at it in its context. What's the paragraph? What was Jesus talking about around that so I understand what he's talking about? What's that whole chapter about? What's that whole book of the Bible about? You don't want to just lift things out. And that'll protect us from being, being misled by somebody who twists Scripture. Another principle is always interpret Scripture with Scripture. What does the entire Word of God say on that topic so that I'm not misled by somebody lifting one thing out? Or this, if somebody's talking to you and they bring up a brand new take on some Scripture passage, well, you can be sure that that's not true. If it's new, 
It's not true if he's just come up with that, like he has some new revelation. And then this also helps us, when you're reading the scripture, be aware of what covenant you're in. What testament are you in? All of it is God's word, all of it authoritative, but we do apply the old covenant differently than we apply the new covenant. The old covenant fulfilled in the life of Jesus. Therefore, we don't follow the ceremonial laws and things like that, the dietary laws. But the moral laws have been restated in the new covenant, and we certainly apply that. So, so we apply scripture differently depending on what covenant we're in, though all of it is indeed God's word. And there's great benefit when we grow in and maintain our biblical stability. Psalm 1 reads so beautifully this. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. He's like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither, and in all that he does he prospers. The wicked are not so, but are like chaff that the wind drives away. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous, for the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. So what do we do while we wait on the glorious return of Jesus and all that's going to unfold? We want to grow in faithfulness. We want to grow in biblical stability, but then this, we want to grow in the grace and knowledge of Jesus. In fact, that's what our text says. We need to grow in the grace and knowledge of Jesus. Look at verse 18. Here it is. But grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And we might ask the question, well, how do you do that? How do you grow? Because you and I know it's the Holy Spirit in us who, who is the one who's going to drive us forward. But we're told there are some things we must do to cooperate with him. In fact, Peter helps us. He closes out 2 Peter talking about this. But he already told us at the very beginning what this looks like. So go back with me just for a moment to 2 Peter chapter 1. Go back to chapter one here and verse five, and he's going to tell you, here's what this looks like to grow in your faithfulness, to grow in the grace and knowledge of Jesus. Verse five, for this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue and virtue with knowledge and knowledge with self-control and self-control with steadfastness and steadfastness with godliness and godliness with brotherly affection and brotherly affection with love. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing... They keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. I love it. Peter says, make every effort to grow in the grace and knowledge of the Lord. When you and I became Christians, we met Jesus because of his kindness and his grace. When we realized, oh, I can't save myself. I'm going to receive this free gift that he's offering. It all began with grace. And Peter says, just keep growing in that grace. You'll never get past the glorious grace of Jesus. And when you met Jesus and you trusted him, somebody gave you some basic gospel knowledge. When you do recognize the, the truth of the gospel, oh, I'm a sinner, I can't save myself, I needed that knowledge. But that Jesus came, lived a perfect life, God in the flesh, died on the cross for me, was raised from the dead, I need to trust in him. You had that basic knowledge and you trusted in Jesus. Peter says, keep growing in that knowledge. Keep growing, get to know him better. You'll be delighted as you know, learn more and more about him. Be diligent to grow, make every effort to grow. So let me ask you, are you seeking to grow stronger in Christ? Could you use words like diligent? I am diligent. I'm making every effort to grow in Christ. Or is it possible that you have more passion and more devotion to your hobbies and activities than to Christ? Listen, that can subtly happen. It can happen to a whole family. Listen, we all want our kids involved in activities, helps them be well-rounded. That's good. 
But isn't it possible that a family can then devote everything to a sport or to an activity? The whole life of the family is disrupted for months after months. And it's a problem if that's to the exclusion of any discipleship in the home, chasing the hobbies. Or not even that. How about this? Sometimes a person can put all their emphasis on their physical body, neglecting their eternal soul. This might be a person who is just really picky and really careful about what kind of, what kind of foods they allow in themselves. It's got to be only of the highest caliber of nutrition if I'm going to eat it and if I'm going to give it to my precious children. Or when it comes to physical fitness, I'm going to really focus on my body and on my physique. Listen, that's good to a point. But that same person might not at all be discerning about the filth they allow in their own mind. You're worried about eating organic, but what are you putting in your mind? And what are you neglecting to put in your mind? Not put the precious word of God in your mind. We can lose our focus while we wait on Jesus coming again. Or maybe it's finances. A person while waiting on Jesus journey can make their whole life about money. I'm just going to get more. I'm going to lay up more and more treasure on earth. Listen, we, we need money. It's expensive and getting more expensive. Then we don't have money, but it cannot be our quest to lay up treasures on the earth. Didn't Jesus say this? What will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? So believer, prioritize your growth in Christ. Verses 11 and 12 again. Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God? Verse 14, therefore, beloved, since you're waiting for these, be diligent to be found by him without spot or blemish and at peace. Verse 18, but grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. This is what Paul told the Philippians. He said this, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. So let the return of Christ, let that motivate you to grow. Let the glory of Christ motivate you to grow because that's how he closes. To him be the glory both now and to the day of eternity. Amen. So while you're waiting on Christ to come, number one thing to do is make sure that you are saved. We've been celebrating a wonderful Savior who wants to forgive sins and to set people free and to give them a home in heaven and eventually on the new earth. All that's so good. But, but all of us need to take that and respond to it. You can't grow in the grace and knowledge of Jesus until you first accept the grace of Jesus. And he wants to save you. He wants to forgive you. And I think it's wonderful if God brought you here and you've never made a decision to trust in Jesus, this is the day, this is the moment to do that. To recognize, yes, I am a sinner. That Jesus alone can save me, the one who lived a perfect life and who died sacrificially for me, raised victoriously for me. I see he's the one I should turn from sin and trust. Oh, he would do that. And then once you trust in him and he saves you, then I'll, by all means, grow in faithfulness, grow in biblical stability, grow in the grace and knowledge of him, and grow for his glory. Pray with me.